HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. As the news of coronavirus reverberates throughout the world, we at HRN are especially concerned about how coronavirus will impact our food system. We will use our platform to support the restaurant, agriculture, hospitality, and other food-related industries by maintaining our coverage and operations. As social distancing becomes the temporary norm, podcasts are more important than ever. There's never been a more crucial time to stay informed about the state of our food system and the ways that food connects our global community. We're sharing all of our COVID-19 coverage at heritageradionetwork.org COVID-19. From interviews with nonprofit leaders and journalists, to first-hand accounts from chefs and restaurant owners, to reports on how this crisis is affecting regional farms. Our team is working remotely from all over to keep food radio alive. HRN needs your support more than ever to keep sharing essential stories and resources with our listeners. Make a donation of any amount. Visit heritageradionetwork.org donate. This episode is brought to you by Cabot Creamery. Proud to be a dairy farm family-owned cooperative for more than 100 years. Learn more at cabotcheese.coop. That's cabotcheese.coop. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast of the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the great fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome Chef Angie Marr of the Beatrice Inn in New York City. In today's episode, we're going to talk to Angie about celebrations in COVID-19 times, meat-based menus, and we'll hear Angie's Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. First, a disclaimer. HRN Studio is temporarily closed, so we're recording this episode remotely. May sound a little different than usual, but we're grateful to have technology that allows the show to go on. As always, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. There's no doubt 
that Julia Child had a flair for the dramatic. She loved the stage, and she loved an audience. She loved to entertain with outrageous props like gigantic knives and massive prehistoric-looking monkfish, wearing full rain gear and umbrella while spinning lettuce indoors. Yep, that was in Julia's repertoire. But that was all on camera. Off camera, Julia loved people and is well-known for her stamina in closing down a restaurant. You wouldn't go as far as to say Julia was a party animal or ever lost control, but having a good time, enjoying life, was definitely part of who she was and how she lived. This extended to what she ate, as eating well and drinking well, and doing so amongst good company, was something she cherished. As the COVID-19 pandemic continues to change our world, and very sadly continues to take more and more life, having a good time seems like it's being redefined. It's certainly difficult to be a social animal in a socially distanced world. Precautions are important, but they don't change that human beings are inherently social creatures. So the pursuit of fun and the comfort we get from being with others continues to be a part of what we want to do. At least we have technology that allows us to stay connected, if only virtually. Someone who's been making similar adjustments to do this new reality is Chef Angie Marr, owner of the Beatrice Inn in New York City's West Village. Angie is the latest proprietor of this storied venue with a long history that includes iterations as a speakeasy, nightclub, and celebrity hangout, not necessarily in that order. Angie has retained its reputation as a, quote, in place to dine while building its serious eating chops. And yeah, chops are on the menu. From a family of food lovers, Angie's aunt is Ruby Chow, who pioneered Chinese cuisine in Seattle. Angie trained in some of New York City's top kitchens, like those of the Marlowe Collective and April Bloomfield's The Spotted Pig. Hired by the legendary Vanity Fair editor-in-chief Graydon Carter and his partners to take over the kitchen of the Beatrice Inn in 2013, her menu revamp expanded its reputation as a place to eat well. In 2016, Angie bought the Beatrice Inn, further transforming it into a top dining destination with show-stopping presentations of her signature dry-age techniques. That same year, Pete Wells of the New York Times awarded the restaurant a coveted two stars, anointing it one of the most celebratory restaurants in the city and a place to go when you want to celebrate your life as an animal. Named Chef of the Year 2016 by Thrillist, one of Food & Wine's Best New Chefs of 2017, Angie's first book, Butcher and Beast, which documents her unapologetic approach to food, hard work, and being true to who you are, was published in 2019. She joins us today to talk about how to keep celebrations going and how to run a restaurant during pandemic times. Welcome to the podcast, Angie. Thank you, Todd, for having me. We're glad you could join us. So I wanted to start with a little bit of an edgy question. But I didn't mm-hmm. think you'd be be afraid. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm never I'm never afraid of controversy. That's definitely not something in my repertoire. <laughs> <laughs> well, and this is something you've publicly talked about. So you at one point famously decided to fire pretty much the entire staff of the Beatrice Inn yeah. and kind of start over. So how yeah. did, given what you're going through now, which you probably need to bring us up to speed on first, but how did the recent changes you had to make in terms of staffing? in the face of the pandemic compared to that moment in time? Well, well, let's talk about the background for the, for the, for the former. So 
Um, you know, the, the history of, and it is a very famous story because it's like, uh, you know, wait, she did what on a Friday night? Um, <laughs> so, uh, you know, the history of that story, um, is, you know, I, I bought this restaurant and nobody knew who I was yet. Right. And I hadn't, hadn't gotten a review, hadn't, you know, gotten any accolades, you know, none of that had happened yet. I just bought the restaurant. And so because I wasn't a well-known chef at the time, um, you know, I, I couldn't get really amazing cooks in the kitchen. Right. Mm. And I think Anthony Bourdain wrote about the different types of cooks in, ki- in Kitchen Confidential. You know, there's the cooks that are, they do it out of passion and love and, and, uh, you know, are really all about the industry. And then there's cooks that are mercenaries, right? Cooks that just do it for the money. You know, there's no care, there's no passion, there's no love in the food. And the only thing that I could get at the time was mercenary cooks because, you know, all of the, all of the, the cooks that had the passion, you know, they didn't know who I was, so they didn't want to work for me. Right. Mm -hmm. So we were in the middle of review period and, uh, meaning that, you know, the New York times critic Pete Wells, uh, was coming to the restaurant, you know, and he would pop in and, you know, they usually do like three to four visits, sometimes five, um, you know, before they write a review. And so we were right in the middle of review period. And, um, you know, I, I run a very French, very militaristic kitchen. And, um, you know, we were, we were in the middle of review period on a Friday night and I just looked around at my kitchen and I was going, there is no love in the food. There is no passion in the food because, you know, I'm as a chef, you're not the one who cooks anymore, right? You're the one who directs. Mm -hmm. Right. So really, the people that are on your line, that kitchen brigade, they're the ones responsible, you know, and the passion, everything they touch, it has to go through them. Right. It starts at the top, of course, but it goes through them because they're the ones that are touching, tasting, loving that food, bringing it into an existence. And, um, you know, I just realized that that it wasn't going to happen. It wasn't going to happen. You know, a, a really great review was not going to happen unless I changed my kitchen. Um, you know, and, and, and those cooks, you know, and they had problems is like, you know, they were, they were drinking every time I turned my back, there were drugs. And when I turned my back, you know, and I didn't, that's just not an environment that I ever wanted to be in. Um, and it's not an environment that I promote. Um, so, you know, I, I left the, the restaurant that night. I went around the corner. I opened a bottle of champagne at my friend's restaurant had a bowl of pasta, figured out what I was going to do. And I, I called my sous chef, Nicole, and I said, hand out the paychecks and fire everyone. Just let them go. So it kind of came to you as a, almost a revelation. Like you knew something yeah. and it just – but it also came, yeah. I assume, from experience you had where you had worked in top restaurants in a senior yeah. chef role Absolutely. and you knew what and it – Exactly. Yeah, you know, you know, I I came from a really long line of restaurants that, you know, are tremendously important to the city. And I just knew that to achieve what we wanted to achieve, we were never going to be able to do it um, with that kind of environment, that kind of toxicity, right? And, uh, you know, so, so that's why I did it. That's why, that's why I let the whole kitchen go. And, you know, we started from scratch. It was me. I had two, two, two sous chefs at the time. Um, and, and, you know, we fired everybody in the kitchen and we did it all ourselves in the middle of review period on a Friday night, just handed out paychecks and let everybody go, came in early the next morning. And we were here, I think, nonstop, uh, seven days a week 
um, working oh, I see. So you, for about so you, two months. Yeah, I hadn't understood that. But now that you're talking mm-hmm. from your first explanation, I was like, well, if you couldn't hire the, the right people before, how could you hire them now? But I think you're mm-hmm. saying you didn't. You actually just I didn't. I just did it myself. On- I, I did it myself. Yeah, we, me and my two sous chefs did it ourselves. We cooked everything. We did everything. And, uh, you know, I still retained my front of house. My front of house was really great. So, you know, we had that support system there. And, um, you know, and I, I called I called everybody I knew. You know, I called I called cooks that I had cooked with before. I called Anita Lowe, you know, Chef Anita Lowe at Anita yeah. uh, at the time. You know, and they, they all came here with their knives, worked for free, did whatever they could, sent me cooks that they knew were out of work that they could vouch for. And that's how we rebuilt the kitchen. And in that process, that whole time, we were still in review period and Wells was coming in here and eating. But that is why I think that we got, you know, because there's there's two star reviews and there's two star love letters. And we definitely got a love letter. And, um, And I think that had we not made that move, we would not have gotten that review because he really felt the passion he felt the love he felt all of that in the food so you know and and ever since then you know we've you know we've rebuilt the kitchen um and getting that that great of a love letter from the times allowed me to uh to hire the cooks that i wanted to hire you know hire the people people were suddenly interested and they wanted to work here you Mm. know um, so it was a really amazing thing. So how does that compare to, you know, to answer your question, how does that compare to the pandemic now? Um, you know, what we're going through now, it's, it's completely different and it's also very much the same. Um, you know, I think that there, there are times I think in everybody's restaurant career where, you know, we have very extreme highs and very extreme lows. Right. And, mm. um, you know, Letting go of my whole kitchen was probably the most empowering thing that I had ever done back then, right? Because mm-hmm. I it taught me that like, okay, I can do whatever. I'm gonna I'm just gonna do it. I can do it by myself. And if this doesn't break me, I don't know what will, right? <laughs> yeah. And um, you know, and and so that was a very empowering moment for me to say, no, I'm not gonna take this behavior and no, I'm not gonna accept food that is below my standards um ever from anyone, right? Um you know, and and then, you know, look, I was in London. I was in London, um, right, you know, right right as Trump was closing down the borders and everything was happening. And, you know, I, I left London early. I came home and, um, you know, I, I had to lay off my entire staff. And it was probably, it's probably the most heartbreaking thing that I think I've ever done. Um, because since that time where, you know, we fired everybody and then started to rebuild, I've collected this amazing group of people who make the Beatrice, what the Beatrice is. And to have to call every single one of them, you know, all 47 employees and say, look, we're not, you know, we, we need to shut down and I have to furlough you right now. And, you know, what, what can I do to help you get unemployment or, or help or whatever. Right. That's, probably it was probably one of the hardest days of my career um and it's you know we talk about this and it's it's almost like you go through grief right it's it's yeah. like grieving because it's you're losing you know the restaurant industry is so familial right um mm. and a lot of us see each other at work uh more than we see our own families or our friends or relatives you know 
And, yeah. and this is, you know, this is the family that we've chosen. So, you know, to make sure that 47 people are okay, that they're, that they're going to be okay, that they're safe, that they feel taken care of. It's a huge responsibility, but it's a responsibility that as a business owner, you know, you, we owe them that. Right. So, you know, it was definitely, it was really hard. And, and, you know, we were closed for, we were closed for about a week because I needed to regroup and I needed to kind of figure out what we were going to do. And, and I think that things were kind of changing minute by minute then, you know, now, now at least I think we as a city, as a country know, you know, um, that's more like week by week, right. Instead of minute by minute. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, so we were closed for we were closed for a week, and and I took the week to kind of regroup. And I was at home, and I, you know, I, I dawned on me and said, you know, the Beatrice Inn has been a citizen of New York for a hundred years. This restaurant has been a citizen of New York City for almost a hundred years. It was here through the stock market crash in the Great Depression. It was here through nine eleven. It was here through Sandy. And you know what? It's going to be here through COVID nineteen, mm. and this is what it's it's our responsibility as as a historic landmarked iconic restaurant to be here for the city of New York. So, you know, going into that, going into to kind of you know shifting right with that in mind, um, you know, it was it was really. It was really empowering. It was once again very empowering. Um, you know, I I'm really honored to be here and and humbled to be here to serve the community. And you know, it's it's really about doing the right thing for not only the community but also for our employees. And you know, we started off we started off opening a few weeks ago with like it was me and three people. Um, you know, so I was like taking the deliveries and I'm washing the dishes and taking people's orders and like, you know, washing more dishes and doing all the things. Um, so, you know, in that way, you know, the amount of work, the amount of physical labor that goes into it was very much like when I let everybody go. Right. Because there was nobody Mm -hmm. here. Um, but you know, it's so, it's almost allowed me to, uh, reconnect with a sense of hospitality that I, that I not, not forgot, but um, just really needed to be reconnected to. Because at the end of the day, everybody that's in the restaurant industry, you know, we're here for a reason. And that is hospitality, right? This is the hospitality business. And, Mm. you know, to be able to reconnect with the guests, the neighbors, new people who might be coming in to try us for the first time, um, to be able to reconnect with the food, um, what, what drives me, what, you know, what I want to cook, what I want to eat. Um, you know, that's, that's a really beautiful thing, you know? Um, and sometimes it takes things like, uh, you know, uh, when shit hits the fan, right? That's when we know if we're going to rally or if we're going to hide mm. and the, everybody in this restaurant has rallied. And that I think is, is a really beautiful thing because it's a true testament to what we've built over the last four years of being here, um, to see, you know, to see this team rally, to see the neighborhood rally, to see the neighborhood come and support, you know, the people that are working here that come in day in and day out so they can feed their kids. And so they can feed, feed the neighborhood and their families. Um, you know, it's, 
it's a very powerful, very moving thing, very humbling thing. Um, and it's, it's, you know, it's something that I'm very grateful to be a part of. And, and do you think that experience, has it in some ways renewed your, your faith and your optimism for the future as dark as the sort of climate, particularly New York is right now? Yeah. Yeah, it has, you know, it has, um, you know, I think, I think that, um, you know, it, if anything, like, you know, we always talk about New York, right? And, and, and how, you know, how New Yorkers are, you know, a lot of people I think that don't live here think, you know, that we're, we're, we're tough and we're, you know, we're very short with people or we're mean, you know, we're not. New York is probably one of the most generous giving communities that I've ever been lucky enough to be a part of, you know, and I, I've been here for 10 years. Um, you know, I, I, I could never leave New York. And, um, you know, it, I think in the past month that, that the city has, you know, gone through this, it has been, you know, some of the darkest times that I have, I've ever seen here in 10 years of living here. Um, but it has also, uh, through that darkness, you know, we've also seen, uh, the humanity and the, the giving and generous nature that, that people who live here hold. Yeah, no, I know. I think I think it's 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 almost sad that the connection of this moment is back to nine eleven and all the the yeah. feelings and things and the adjustments. But that ultimately, for all that New York takes it on the chin, it it ends up um, coming out stronger. But certainly, is a place I think that um, it has scars. And I say that my I, I'm the descendant of two New York families. Um, yeah, so. Um, it's a very, I think, important truism that can get lost in all the the, the yeah. barking when you get off the plane and hear it for the first time. So I want to no, ask you, before we have to go to break, I, I want to ask you about this sort of before of the Beatrice and particularly mm -hmm. under your tenure and about it, what Pete Wells said about it being a place for celebration. And I just wanted, to, as a sort of proprietor of a place that was very much known for that, what your view is for this moment, for everyone listening, you know, is there still room? Should we still be celebrating, especially when our favorite celebration places are closed and we've just come out of Passover and Easter? What's mm -hmm. your point of view on celebrations right now? Well, here's the thing. I think that, you know, and we, you know, we talk about it as being a very dark time for the city, but you know, the reality is, is that this, you know, when we talk about it as a global view, this is a very dark time for us globally. I mean, the, the entire world is on pause, um, you know, and, and, and that's, that's a very real thing. So, um, you know, I think that we as not only individuals, but also, but as a country, as a global society, um, you know, there's two, there's, there's two choices that you have, Right. There is, we can sit in our houses and, uh, you know, watch, watch the news and, and live out of fear, right, of the unknown of what's going to happen. Or we can utilize this time to, if we can't go outside, you can go inside. You can go inside yourself. You can utilize this time to uh, almost renew 
right? Renew faith in yourself, renew faith in the family, renew, renew your faith in humanity, right? You can, you can use that time to really renew. And I think that there is something very celebratory in that because I think that a lot of us get caught up in the, and I know I do, I'm definitely guilty of this, where a lot of us get caught up in, you know, the day to day and everything that we have to get done. And we don't stop to sit here and think, as much and reflect as much. And I think right now is a really good time to do that. And especially, you know, I know for me, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a creative, right? So creativity does not stop. It does not stop no matter what, you know, and, and, you know, I've really very much been utilizing this time to think about what, what, what I have to do right now, right? Because there's very much immediate things that I have to do to, to get out of this. But what does the world look like? What does the Beatrice look like? What do I look like as a person, you know, when we come out of this? Mm. Um, you know, and, and I do think that there is importance in finding um, and value in finding ways to celebrate every single day, um, even if it is in some, some very small way. Uh, I, you know, I think it's, it's a tremendously important thing. Well, I want to hear more from you about your post pandemic thinking and we'll, mm-hmm. we'll kind of put a marker down. You'll say it and we'll yeah. check back with you in, in, in a year and see, and see how much it evolves. <laughs> so we're, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back to talk more to chef Angie Marr from the Beatrice Inn in New York city. Stay with us. Cabot Creamery has been making the world's finest dairy products for over 100 years. Cabot's award-winning cheddars and other dairy products stand apart because of their farmers' tireless dedication to quality and freshness, caring for their animals, and to healthy land and a sustainable future. More than a century after they started this journey, Cabot's farmer owners still know what matters most. Family and community, the simple truth that we're stronger together than we are apart. That delicious products are the reward of a job well done. That when you love what you do this much, that the best is always still to come. Welcome back. We're talking to Chef Angie Marr of the Beatrice Inn in New York City about how to celebrate during a pandemic and what the future holds for restaurants like hers. So I do want to talk to you about sort of both your crystal ball and your evolving thinking. Mm-hmm. But I I did originally when we had planned to um, have a conversation, it was kind of for a different moment in time and for mm-hmm. a different project. And I didn't want to lose the chance on the off chance you might still do it or be able to do part of it. But I wanted to just get you to describe and kind of explain the thinking behind this icons dinner series that as you mm-hmm. kind of said is on pause now. But um, mm-hmm. can you tell us about that and, and what you sort of hope or thinking about it, picking back up or not? Yeah, of course. Um, well, uh, you know, so I have a lot of cooks in the kitchen that are uh, just recently out of school and a big portion of my, um, you know, our program at the Beatrice with employees as uh, mentorship 
Um, because at the end of the day, you know, it won't matter how many books I write. It won't matter how many restaurants I open. It won't matter. None of that matters. What will matter is where everybody in this restaurant is now in 10 years and how we've grown the family tree. And if I've been setting everyone that's here now up for success for later on down the road. So that's how this whole icon dinner series started is because what I realized is this next generation of cooks, um, you know, they don't, they don't, they're, you know, they're, they're, they're young, they're, they're young. And, uh, you know, they didn't grow up watching Julia Child on TV. They didn't grow up watching Jacques Pepin on TV. You know, they weren't, they, they hadn't, have no idea who Andre Soltner is and the impact that Lutece had on New York um, and really on America and the way that we dine. Um, you know, the same thing with Le Cirque um, and uh, Alain Salak. Uh, you know, so, so really I wanted to uh, have a moment in time where, where my cooks could learn from the greats. I wanted them to be able to learn from the greats, whether it was out of their books, whether it was cooking alongside them, um, you know, all of that. And, and, you know, really we can't push the ball forward. We can't, we can't mentor the next generation without stopping to appreciate where it is that we came from. Right. Mm -hmm. And Julia, Andre, Jacques, Alain, uh, you know, they, they really organized the restaurant industry, right? So mm. others could succeed. They laid the foundation. They changed the way America cooks, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, so that's how this whole thing started. And, um, and I think uh, it was, I was so excited about the feedback that I got, you know, um, for people that really want to come to these dinners because it's, you know, it really shows how tremendous of an impact uh, these people had on, on the dining community. Um, you know, and, and, you know, we were getting calls, uh, when we, when we put the tickets out, we were getting calls from people saying, oh, you know, I, I used to, I used to go eat at Lutece, you know, every week, or, you know, I, I would go there for a celebration or I got engaged there and I'm, you know, we're still married, like things like that, you know what I mean? And so it's really, really beautiful. Um, you know, and, uh, and so, uh, you know, it is on hold, but we are, we are absolutely proceeding with the dinners, you know, we're, we're rescheduling them right now, uh, for later on this year, and, and hopefully we'll be able to, to carry through with them, because, you know, I think it's a really important thing, and, um, and, uh, you know, not just, not just to the cooks, not just to me, but also to, to diners, right, to be able to experience that food, you know, and it's not even my interpretation of, of these chefs' food. Uh, it, we are literally cooking the exact recipes out of their cookbook, uh, word for word, which is is something that's really exciting, you know? Yeah, and I, I love that explanation. And, and even though uh, we'd been in communication about the, the Julia dinner that you're doing, I hadn't realized that mm -hmm. origin, that it's kind of as much a public special event as it is an internal like education process. And I think mm -hmm. that it's a wonderful duality that that like everyone can experience the event like it's mm -hmm. sort of a 360 in the restaurant, both for staff yeah. and and guests. I, I think just to stay in a moment of joy, what uh, can you give us some you don't even have to give us a whole menu, but like an mm -hmm. idea of like what kind of food either 
what the menu of the Julia dinner is or if there mm-hmm. if whatever pops into your head that you'd already yeah. put together? Well, you know, uh, one of I was reading um, Andre Soltner's book and, uh, you know, I think I, I think Andre and, and I might be cut from the same cloth. You know, <laughs> I think that, you know, he's, he's, he's talks a lot about in his book about how, well, you know, I made this and people didn't like it because they didn't understand it, but they didn't even know what they liked. I knew what they liked, you know, <laughs> and it's quite funny because I, I find myself saying that all the time, too. So, <laughs> so, um, so we were definitely, you know, Andre was very much responsible for bringing uh, sea urchin to the States and, and nobody had even heard of it. Nobody knew that they could eat it. Uh, really. And so we, for, for the Lutest dinner, we are definitely doing the, uh, his sea urchin in uh, champagne jelly. Um, and uh, Jacques, Jacques Pepin's dinner, I am just so thrilled. Uh, you know, we're, we're cooking a lot out of his, out of a lot of his books. We're like, we're do- definitely doing La Technique, but, um, you know, he just loves birds. So we're doing mm. a lot of birds, which we're very excited about. And, you know, Julia, I have a very, very fond, um, you know, place in my heart for her because, you know, although I never met her, I, um, you know, I, I, I think like a lot of people, you feel like you know her, right? Because you mm. grew up watching TV and you grew up watching her. And, uh, you know, I still have, I still have Mastering the Art of French Cooking and I still have that. Uh, you know, the original one from when I was maybe like seven or eight years old. And, um, you know, it, it sits in the office uh, above the restaurant and it is splattered with wine and with beef fat. And, uh, you know, from me making bouffe bourguignon when I was like 10 years old with my dad. Mm. So, you know, it is, we're definitely making bouffe bourguignon. Like that, that much I can guarantee you, <laughs> um, you know, so, so it's really the classics, you know, the classics and, and, and some, you know, some dishes that maybe not so much, you know, that were kind of like the un, unsung heroes um, from each of these, these great chefs repertoire. That sounds wonderful. I'm, 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 I'm matching up this champagne a sea urchin with the buff bourguignon that doesn't probably not on the same <laughs> menu. But let, let's let's no on no meat. we're doing separate <laughs> nights we're doing separate nights. Yeah. Um, let's stick on meat for a second because I'm kind mm-hmm. of fascinated and this didn't occur to me at the beginning because it's not like you're the only person focused on meat and there's been I mean I think we've had on other episodes there's like this kind of funny duality where there's a set of chefs who are getting more and more into advanced butchery and the art of it and particularly how meat is raised and the ethical side of of mm-hmm. still eating meat but doing it in a more sustainable and healthier and more delicious way and then on the flip side we've got this massive plant-based movement so I really wanted to ask mm-hmm. you so the Beatrice for those who don't know is both had long before you was known as a place for the glamorous set and then more after you has been known as also for its lavish displays of meat and I was mm-hmm. just curious that because plant-based is very in vogue and that that's going on how how does a meat driven restaurant kind of stay fashionable too or what's your perspective on that um you know it's funny i don't really everybody always asks me about trends and i don't you know the truth is is that i actually don't pay attention to trends um especially with food i you know the big the big I guess it's not really a secret anymore um, because I've said it in a lot of interviews, but, you know, it used to be a secret. Uh, The big, you know, the big 
dirty secret that I've always had is that, you know, I don't go out to eat. I, I, I don't go out to eat ever. Um, and I, I, I eat, I go out to eat and I, I eat sushi. I eat sushi or I go out and I have pasta and that's it. But I don't actually go to, uh, you know, to go eat other people's food because I, I'm, I'm very like to be in my own head when it comes to creativity. Right. Mm-hmm. So if you asked me, you know, who was out there in New York or, or beyond doing, you know, plant-based stuff, I wouldn't be able to tell you. I have no idea. Um, but my view on it is that, you know, look, I cook the food that I love. And um, I, I believe that everything is great in moderation and it's all going to be fine. And, um, you know, this meat is just something that this is just what I've always wanted to eat. You know, I have pictures of when I was a kid gnawing on ribeye bones, still in a high chair. And that's <laughs> still my life today. I, I, you know, that's what I ate yesterday. So, you know, <laughs> um, you know, nothing has changed. Nothing has changed from, you know, they pretty much came out the womb like this and it's not going to, it's not going to change anytime soon. So, um, well, you no, know, that, like, I, that I have to say that resonates with me because I was never yeah. a big, like I eat everything. I'm definitely an omnivore, but I was never mm-hmm. super big on like, I was too finicky and picky and I didn't like things on the bone. And <laughs> my kids yeah. would just take like a whole chicken wing and like devour yeah. it and spit the bones out and ask for another. But then at the same time, they definitely have friends who will not at seven yeah. or 10 touch meat and have proactively sure. said. And I do wonder if there is a sort of innate um, just sensibility that either you're drawn to it or you're not. I think that's a, a fair enough point. Yeah. I, you know, I, I yeah. And it, it could be, you know, and um, cause look, I, I very much, my father, there was always a T-bone steak on, on the table and there was always a roast on Sundays. So, you know, I, this is just what I grew up eating. It's the food that I crave. And I'm not, I'm not really into the idea of, cooking food that I don't, that I can't stand behind 110% or that I don't love ardently, right? Because I think if I, you know, if I was sitting here cooking like, you know, vegetarian food or whatever, just to satiate, you know, the 5% of people that come through here or somebody's here on a date, you know, and, and somebody wants a steak, somebody wants a, you know, vegetable dish. If I was like doing that, there wouldn't be any love in the food. And I, you know what I mean? So it's like, how can I stand behind that? Like everything on our menu is stuff that I love. Um, but you know, also too, it's like, you know, if you ask me if it's, if it's, you know, how can we weather this, you know, the, the storm of, of, you know, vegetarianism or veganism, all of that stuff. Um, you know, look, New York is the birthplace of the steakhouse. This is where this is, this is, this is it. You know, I, the, the history of the steakhouse in New York is, that, you know, there were beefsteak dinners and men, it was only men that were allowed in and they would get dressed up in black tie and then they would eat beef and drink beer and they would eat beef with their hands. And that's what it was. And, and that's how, that's how elections were won. That's how, you know, that's that's how a lot of the political foundation for our city came to be is through these beefsteak dinners. So, you know, New York is, is really the birthplace of the steakhouse. So I, I, I can't see it going anywhere. 
<laughs> okay. So I, I think also you're kind of saying it's like, so I thought you were going to say, I actually, that is not what I thought you were going to say. I thought you were going to say there's something for everyone in New York and there's enough room for everybody. So you've kind of got well, your lane. Well, that's true in the too. <laughs> yeah. That's what I thought. But that's I like what you <laughs> Yeah, that's true. Well, no, I did. That's true too. I couldn't tell you what the, the other places are if you asked me because I don't go out to eat, but it's it's definitely true as well. Well, and I think you, we haven't talked about it as much on this podcast, but you're very much about staying true to yourself and what means something mm-hmm. to you and what's valued. And mm-hmm. that involves displays of meat and butchery and things like that. And I assume, but I am curious. So on that note, though, you must, especially if you have a, a restaurant where people who are either in or wanting to be part of the fashionable New York, particularly media or or celebrity set Mm -hmm. go, like you must get requests all the time. Oh, I'm on a vegan diet. What do you have? Like, how do you, what's Mm -hmm. the approach? What, what's, what have you, how does your front of house manage that? The menu is the menu. I mean, and it's, you know, it's really interesting because like I, you know, you would think, and people do ask a lot because we do have a very, you know, we do have a celebrity clientele, um, you know, and, and, and a big one. Um, we've retained that since, since I bought it. And, um, we don't, it's the answer is the same. doesn't matter who you are. The answer is the same. It's like, you know, the menu is the menu and this is what, this is what we have. This is how we cook. You know, we don't, we don't make alterations for anybody. I don't care who it is. Um, you know, because really it's, it's truly about the vision. It's truly about the vision. And, and what we always say to people is that, look, like when you know you might you might think you know what you want but open yourself up to the possibility that you might not know open yourself up to the possibility that we might give you something that you didn't even know you wanted you know <laughs> and and that that is And and what's answer. the thing from the menu that you would send out in that case Oh oh probably you know oxtail oxtail because uh, everybody's mm. always scared of oxtail and so mm. i'm always like you know look you just try the oxtail it's, it's amazing and you know and one thing that i love about it is it is it truly is that dish you know we have a lot of things on the menu and a lot of very very big ridiculous fancy things but you know that dish for me is home you know it's it's home it's it's something that i would have i would have made you know on a sunday for my dad um and, and so when people, you know, I think a lot of first time diners, when they come here, they don't know what to expect, but that's a dish that I give them. Cause I think it's one of the most unexpected ones. You know, we, I don't, I think it's, you know, you can come and you can do the, the duck flambe, you can come and do all of that stuff, but like, you know, the oxtail, it's, it's, it's kind of like the unsung hero of the menu, I think. Okay. I look forward to having that post pandemic. Yeah. You're, you're on. Now, I want to go back to what we started. You started coming around to you and you talked generally, but I really mm-hmm. wanted to talk to you about that. And especially, but I also wanted to go through making sure people who maybe have, haven't been had an understanding of what, you know, your food is and what the Beatrice Inn mm-hmm. is and whether, especially as a place that's known and, and has been, you know, to be fair, cultivated for glamour and for lavish displays of meat, given the thinking and the the, the time to the extent mm-hmm. that you have it what has your thinking evolved or is your thinking that you really just want hoping this ends in five weeks six weeks and you just and we back? can all go back to normal no yeah. what's your thinking? it's not gonna happen it's not gonna happen the world has changed 
You know, the world has changed. Um, you know, we, the entire world is on pause right now. And I think that it's forced me to really reevaluate, um, you know, what life is going to look like when we come out of this on the other side. And, um, you know, the Beatrice Inn has been so many things over, over the years. You know, it was a speakeasy. Uh, in the twenties, you know, Fitzgerald and Hemingway and Zelda, they all used to eat here. Um, you know, it was an Italian restaurant, uh, for over 50 years. It was owned by the Cardia family. Um, you know, it was a nightclub. It was one of the most debaucherous nightclubs in the city in the early two thousands. Um, you know, and then Graydon Carter owned it and then I took it over. So it's, it's been, many, many things throughout its life. And I'm not sure what it's going to look like when we come out of this, but I do know that life is not going to be the same. Um, you know, I, we're, I, I do, I do know that, um, you know, we won't go back to, to being, um, you know, just like this, it's, it's just not going to be the same, you know? And, and it was interesting because I was, I was thinking about it the other day and, um, you know, our book butcher and beast, uh, it came out in October. And, you know, if you, if you flip through that book, it really kind of chronicles the glamour, it chronicles New York, it chronicles the grittiness, it chronicles the, uh, the luxe, feeling that this restaurant has. And, um, I'm, I'm actually quite glad that, that we were able to publish that book last year, because I don't know if, um, if it's ever going to be like that again, you know? Um, and, and that's not, it's not to say that that's a bad thing. It's not to say it's a bad thing. It's, um, you know, change is inevitable um and change is also growth and that's how i look at it so you know we are approaching uh the beatrice inn's 100 year anniversary and um you know like i said i i, I don't know what what this restaurant will look like at the you know as we come out of this but what i do know is that if there were ever a time for change um, as we usher this restaurant, this very historic place in New York City into its next hundred years of existence, um, you know, it, it, it's, it's a good time for it now. So do you look at that op- optimistically as, as your opportunity to make its mark in, in a new iteration, whatever that may be, that mm-hmm. maybe might be radically different or it might be 50% the same, but either way, it yeah. sounds like you're looking you know, at still planting that flag and moving forward. A hundred percent. Yeah. A hundred percent. Because look, you know, the, and you know, my, I, I don't know what it might be, you know, maybe the food's a little different. Maybe I, I, I'm not really sure, but what I do know is that, you know, for the past hundred years, this restaurant, and you know, we talk about celebration. That's what we've been talking about this whole, this whole podcast. Right. And mm-hmm. um, what I do know is that won't change. You know, the fact that this restaurant is, uh, is a, is a place to celebrate the fact that, um, you know, it has been a place to celebrate for the past hundred years that will not change. It's just a matter of, you know, what, what, what it looks like and do we alter it? Which, which again, you know, I, I don't know if that's the answer. Um, 
but I do know that, uh, you know, Pete Wells said it very eloquently when he said that this restaurant is a place to celebrate your life, um, as an animal. And, uh, I think that that phrase pretty much sums up this restaurant and, and that's what it has been for the hundred years. And so I, I don't see a need to change that aspect of it now. That makes perfect sense. So we're going to ask everyone, how have you managed to carry on your celebrations during this time of social distancing as an animal? What was on your Easter and or Passover or other celebratory table? And how did you adapt to sharing us, sharing it? Send us an email or even a voice memo to contact at juliachildfoundation.org or better yet, tweet us at juliachildjcf and let us know. Now more than ever, we think a Julia moment is exactly what we need to lift everybody's spirits. So after the break, Angie's going to reveal hers. Stay with us. We'll be right back. When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. Well, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia Moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory moment or how she's inspired them in their career. Angie, you've talked about a little Julia bit, but um, now's your chance for your, give us your formal Julia moment. <laughs> I have so many. <laughs> I have so many. Um, you know, as I said, I, you know, I grew up watching Julia on TV and, and, and I have, you know, my father was very dear to me and, um, you know, and he really taught me how to cook and I, you know, I still have that cookbook, Julia's book, um, you know, just splattered with, with all different things and flour and, and, you know, uh, beef fat and wine and it, and it sits in my shelf. Um, but I think that Julia Although she and I never met, I do feel that had she come to the Beatrice, had she eaten our food, I feel that she she would have loved it. I believe that ardently um, because there's so much about her, how she celebrated life, how she celebrated cuisine, how she celebrated cooking and the art of it um, that, that this restaurant speaks to. So I believe she would have loved it very much. Um, but you know, one of, one of the moments that, and I remember it, you know, as I was a kid, one of the moments that I realized that, you know, cooking was okay. And, and, you know, we were allowed to experiment and to make mistakes was, uh, watching her on TV when she was making an omelet, you know, and, and it's something that's so simple, right? It was something that was so simple, you know, to make an omelet to, you know, there's like three ingredients in it. And she made it okay for food not to be absolutely perfect. And there was almost something that was perfect in the imperfection. Mm. And that made it okay, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I really, I've always kind of held that, uh, you know, with me since I was a kid and as I was learning to cook and throughout my career, because so many chefs, um, and so many people, you know, they, they want food to be like that Instagram perfect, right. That, mm-hmm. you know, social media perfect and everything's done with tweezers and it's cut perfectly. <laughs> and like, oh, that's not how I cook. That's not how I've ever cooked. And, um, you know, and I don't think that's how Julia cooked. 
you know, and, and I think I really, I think I really learned that from years of watching her, um, that it wasn't really about the perfection to the eye on the plate, right? It was about how perfect that dish made you feel, how perfect that first bite made you feel, what it did to your soul, right? And that's what really great food does to you. It makes you feel perfect inside. And, um, you know, so I, I think that omelet moment really, really kind of ushered in my food philosophy and how I cook today. Well, so I've heard I of think- for that. <laughs> yeah, no, and I think your description, that was quite wonderful of the description of how cooking and food makes you feel was absolutely what Julia was trying to communicate and was her starting from her, her aha moment to every teachable mm-hmm. moment that she has. And I have no doubt that she would have enjoyed um, feasting at the Beatrice and 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 whatever incarnation it, it has next. So thank you yeah. so much for joining us today and sharing the story of all that you've been through and your insights about the future. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Todd. I really appreciate it. A pleasure. And thanks everyone for listening. To keep up with the latest from Angie and the Beatrice Inn, you can follow her at Angie Kmar, M-A-R, and it's at Beatrice underscore in on Instagram. And you can check in. If you're in the New York area, you can check out their takeaway menu. And then you can also stay on top of all their plans for post-pandemic um, on the Beatrice.com. Keep up with us and our ongoing efforts to help with the COVID-19 pandemic. It's at Julia Child on Facebook and at Julia Child Foundation on Instagram. It's at Julia Child JCF and I'm at T. Shulkin on Twitter. The Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at WGBH. Thanks, as always, to my co-producer of the Foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, Amanda Wang. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Veltorni. Remember to give us a review. It really does help new listeners discover the show. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific. Downloads available soon after wherever you find your podcasts. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. This program is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter. Our handle is at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com forward slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. <laughs>